One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello, the people you can hear around us chatting are at a conference in Tallinn, Estonia, and they are cyber warriors, at least uh, that's what journalists would call them. They object to that, saying that they're simply involved in online security and that sort of thing. It's a NATO conference, and it's in Tallinn because it's a centre of excellence for cyber warfare. And we are here to learn more about it. And it's an absolutely fascinating topic. It's a whole new sort of area of conflict. And Elizabeth Davis, you spotted this conference. Yeah, I mean, it's been um, a topic I've been interested in for a little while. Um, And it's very interesting to me that Estonia, of all places, a country that we don't hear a huge amount about on the news, um, is really the global leader, probably, when it comes to this stuff. Uh, Largely because it suffered this huge cyber attack, um, which some see as the first sort of cyber war, although that's debatable, uh, back in 2007. Yeah, so they, they, they sort of faced this onslaught of uh, cyber attacks in 2007, and it took down a lot of their systems. And since then, they've been trying to work out how to become more resilient and indeed to advise the world, really, on, on how to cope with this. Yeah, so uh, after the attack, um, they lobbied NATO to have this NATO centre of excellence built here. And so uh, every year, uh, they host this international conference. So we are really sitting here surrounded by the, the world's leaders when it comes to, to cyber conflict. Yes, a lot of suits, a few uniforms, and uh, a lot of people who understand an awful lot about the net and, and how to keep it, keep it working. So it's a very, very interesting subject, actually, and we've got a brilliant panel, as you say, because basically the world's leading experts are here. We've got four of them. So that is this week's News Hour Extra. There is a reason that NATO holds its annual international conferences on cyber conflict in Tallinn, Estonia. In April 2007, the Estonian authorities moved a statue of a Soviet soldier from a park in central Tallinn to a military graveyard in the suburbs. Estonia has a substantial Russian minority, and there were two days of rioting opposing the move. But then something else happened, a massive cyber attack. The Parliament's email server was shut down. A fake letter from the Prime Minister apologising for removing the statue circulated. The websites of several newspapers and the biggest bank were brought down. Estonia's then Defence Minister, and we'll be hearing from him in the programme, said it was an attack on Estonian national security. And in response, Estonia had to close off most of its network to people outside the country. It had to isolate itself. But once the immediate... Crisis passed, it decided to develop expertise in how to deal with cyber threats, and in 2008, NATO established its Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence here in Tallinn. It is the uh, first and only centre of its kind. And so today, Estonia attracts experts from all over the world to discuss cyber warfare, and many are gathered here for this year's international conference, and they include our panel. So we've tapped into some of the world's leading experts on this. We have Jason Healy from Columbia University in New York now, and the editor of the first history of conflict in cyberspace, a fierce domain, Cyber Conflict 1986 to 2012. And I should say he was director of cyber infrastructure protection at the White House from 2003 to 2005. So he really does know uh, how this works. And we've got Kim Zetter, <coughs> senior staff reporter at Wired magazine, covering cybercrime, privacy and security, and the author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, 
and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. And we'll be talking about zero days, explaining <laughs> what they are. And we've got Andrei Soldatov, who's a Russian investigative journalist and expert on the Russian security services generally, but also what they do in this cyber sphere, and is the author of The Red Web. And we've got Lise Fihul, who's a legal analyst in the law and policy branch of this NATO Centre of Excellence here in Tallinn, and actually the project manager of the Tallinn Manual, and we'll explain that later as well. So can you just help us understand what happened in 2007? Lise, why don't you start as the Estonian on the panel? How big was the attack? What happened? Well, at the time the attack happened, it seemed much worse than we would assess it today. And indeed, after the Second World War Memorial was moved from uh, downtown Tallinn to this military cemetery, we witnessed uh, fairly large-scale cyber attacks against Estonian national information systems. And these were the first of its kind in a sense that these attacks really made the international community realize that cyber today is an international security concern. And they were also important from an international law perspective because they really made lawyers and policymakers ask questions as to whether these attacks against Estonia were unlawful and which responses would have been available to Estonia to defend itself. Yeah, I was reading an account by, I think it was one of the newspaper editors who saw all his you know, normal graphics on his computer screen showing how many people were logging onto his website. And he thought he must have a brilliant news day because more and more people were coming to his site. But then he realised it was just getting madly out of control and it was a deliberate attempt to bring his site down. That's true. Uh, those uh, media websites that uh, reported on uh, the remo- removal of the uh, memorial were also targeted, yeah. as were governmental websites. Yeah, let's just hear from... Jak Avikso, who was Defence Minister at the time, he's now a university rector, and he's making the point that this attack, it wasn't just about the physical damage it did to infrastructure, you know, cyber infrastructure, but also what it did to the people of Estonia and how they perceived their situation. Let's just hear what he said. What was bad was, uh, since Estonians were very digitised in those days, so if banks are down for four hours... If news is not available over internet, so you feel scared. You you don't know who's in command. So I think that really constituted the first cyber war against the country. The most important thing, I, I believe, was the public reaction, how people perceived it. I won't go to the point telling that they felt as if the government was no more in charge of the events. But they feel scared. There was no clear explanation. Of course, we we try to find out what was all behind that, but of course it's not that easy. We were not that well prepared. Um, It was the extent and the impact on the society that was important. Of course, no uh, material damage or no threat to lives or loss of lives. In that sense, it was not an act of war. But a debate uh, going on after those attacks uh, made it clear that if if an externally caused uh, event affects a country, its economy, its functioning, to that extent, it is a national security threat. And that was uh, Jak Avikso, Defence Minister, back in 2007 here in Estonia. Let's bring in Andrei Soldatov. You're based in Moscow, and it's you know, widely assumed, never proven, that this attack came from some sort of official origin in Moscow. 
What would be the intention? I mean, it's quite interesting hearing that. It's also it's a psychological weapon as well as a physical one. Yes, from from the first day, uh, the impression was that it was uh, meant as a political message, as a message to this to the Estonian government and to uh, to the population of the country. And that's why we first, we, uh, not only me, but many Russian journalists uh, tried to understand what kind of organization was behind this attack. And, of course, the first guess uh, that the Russian security services should have some, some, some role in this attack. Because for many years, actually for 20 years, uh, not the military, but the security services were in charge of uh, cybersecurity things uh, in Russia. But surprisingly, what we found and uh, what was found by international journalists also was uh, the fact that actually it was not about the security services but it was about pro-government youth movements encouraged by the administration of the president. And few, I think two years after the attack, one of the main people behind the attack came up and uh, he spoke to the Financial Times and he actually admitted that his organization and uh, he himself was in charge of the attack. And the important point was he wasn't a state official, this guy claiming to have coordinated all this. Yeah, he, was, uh, in, uh, he said that he was uh, outraged by the policies of, of Estonia and he just decided to call on uh, patriotic uh, hikers and patriotic people in the country to attack Estonian websites. Yes, an outraged private citizen. So what, where does that leave the international legal response? Let's bring in Jason Healy on that point because Estonia is a member of NATO. This was an attack as far as they were concerned, but NATO didn't uh, invoke Article 5, which involves you know, all members coming to the defence of one when under attack. Should it have done? No, certainly not, because we hadn't had a, at the point that was causing real death and destruction yet. And that was the real point of NATO, to be there when, when one state is really at war. So the cyber attacks were, were quite bad. They were quite disruptive. We heard from the, from the Minister of Defense um, who talked about you know, the citizens not feeling like uh, they could trust their government. But he also used the word cyber war. And so it's probably not reaching that point. When we're at war, people are usually dying. Uh, if the United States or, or Great Britain are at war, you get to drop bombs. You get to cause collateral damage. You get to kill people in your sleep. All different laws apply in the, international, in the realm of international affairs when you start using that word war. Yeah, but we'll talk more about this in a moment. But it, it is a difficult line to draw because if you can imagine, you know, and this has happened, a power grid being taken down, mm -hmm. that happened in Ukraine, by uh, a cyber attack... People die when power grids go down. Mm -hmm. Is that war? It, it would be if that ever happens, and it will likely soon. But as far as I can tell in my research, no one has ever died from a cyber attack yet. Cyber failures, certainly, but not a deliberate cyber attack. There's a term around of a digital Pearl Harbor, an electronic Pearl Harbor that this, this attack is just lurking out there to hit us. And this month, June, is the 25th anniversary of the first use of that term, digital Pearl Harbor. So we've been worrying about this, about people dying from this attack for 25 years, and it still hasn't happened. So we might have to rejig re our thinking here. To assess the, the degree of the threat. Absolutely. OK. Well, let, let's, let's bring in uh, Kim Zetter now, because you know a lot about, you've written a book about, probably the most militaristic, if you like, cyber attack yet, which was the attack on the Iranian nuclear centrifuges at Natanz, and that was back in 2009-10, wasn't it? Tell us what happened then, because, I mean, this looks much more like a military attack. Right. So this was uh, basically a virus slash worm 
that was developed by the U.S. and Israel, and it uh, infected systems at this facility outside of the village of Natanz, where um, the Iranians were enriching uranium hexafluoride gas. And what it did was two separate attacks. One was designed to close valves on the centrifuges to increase the pressure uh, and destroy the centrifuges in that way and destroy the gas, and the other one was designed to spin the centrifuges out of control and the same effect, uh, destroy centrifuges and destroy gas. So that was the first case that we know of uh, where digital code has been used to cause physical destruction. There was a uh, – there's this sort of apocryphal case um, that people talk about from the 1980s of the Russian pipeline. No one has ever been able to confirm that this ever Russian happened. Russian pipeline from – the gas pipeline going from the Russia to Europe, okay. and, and it blew up in 1986, I think. Right. There was an explosion. The story has been circulating for since then that this was caused by the CIA and that it was a logic bomb. Um, no one has ever been able to verify that, and so we don't really know if that ever happened. But an Iranian one you're describing, the, the bit of code was called Stuxnet, wasn't it? Yes, that was a, a, a name that Microsoft gave it uh, because uh, Microsoft examines uh, the first part of the code, uh, which was a zero day that was used to get into the systems. Okay, so anyone around the table who considers what happens in Iran, I mean, just imagine you're, I don't know, the supreme leader sitting in Tehran seeing this happen. I mean, that might begin to look like well, if not war, then military action. Definitely an act of force. And that's what the Talon Manual determined, that it was indeed an act of force. Yeah. We'll talk about the Talon Manual. Let's leave the Talon Manual out for just okay. a moment. But just in general terms, would that be an act of war? I think Iran could have had a fantastic case on this. But even Iran said, nothing happened here. This wasn't so damaging to us. We can shrug this Obviously kind they of were thing playing off. It down. If yeah. they had wanted to make that case on the world stage, they might have had a very, very strong case to have done it, but they chose not to. And if they had, what sort of response would they have been legitimately been able to make? I mean, would it be a proportionate cyber response? How does it work? First of all, when an international lawyer looks at what happened, uh, then international lawyers use slightly different terminology. And this is Lise Verhill, I should say, yeah, from, from Estonia. So the, the question is, was the attack on the nuclear plant an armed attack? And what armed attack means is that the target state is entitled to use force in self-defense. Now, was that the case uh, with uh, Stuxnet? Like uh, like Jason mentioned, Iran would have had a fairly good case in arguing that. However, the countries that allegedly authored uh, the Stuxnet malware were operating under the belief that uh, they were legally entitled to launch the malware into Iran. So the, the law gets quite complicated here, but either side would have had a compelling case. Let, let, let me put another case, which I was hearing about at the conference today, the Israeli strike on Syria's alleged nuclear facility, which was just a couple of years ago, and the suggestion was made in this conference that somehow the Israelis disabled the Syrian radar network so that their planes could get in undetected. Would that legitimate a military or cyber military response? The main issue wasn't in the Israel strike in, into Syria wasn't that they were using, uh, you know, they're using cyber from what I've heard so far on, on the radar sites, um, something that the U.S. Air Force, the reports that we had been doing as far back as the late 90s in the operations against Yugoslavia, right? Syria's main problem wasn't would have been with the cyber. Right. It, it would, would have be been with the, bombs, with the bombs <laughs> falling. Right. Yes, I see. But we do this often with the cyber and that we get so focused in on the cyber aspect of because it, it's new, it's different. We don't quite understand it. We have to get our heads around it that sometimes we forget it's just a smaller part of a, of a larger. I mean, for example, look at North Korea. 
It looks like it attacked Sony. It looks like it's been... Just talk us through that for people who don't remember that. So, oh boy, a year and a half ago now, Sony Motion Pictures was releasing a movie that showed the assassination of the North Korean leader, and the North Koreans uh, pretty extensively hacked and took down Sony. There are recent reports, uh, probably just last week, that the North Koreans have been doing large-scale bank heists against the, the SWIFT financial network. And so there are a lot of folks that have said, we must fight back at North Korea on this. This is terrible. We must deter them. But actually, they did, didn't they? I mean, I, my, my understanding was that the Americans did uh, respond in kind in a, with, a, with a proportionate cyber attack that damaged North Korea's, I don't know, infrastructure in some way. Is that not the case? That, that wasn't us. That wasn't us. Oh. Um, yeah, so the North Korean internet did go down for a little bit afterwards, but I, but I talked to a fair number of folks that said this wasn't us. The United States knew that it was getting attributed to them, and they didn't come forward and say that wasn't us. They actually did come, come forward afterwards because oh, there was a lot of discussion about, uh, oh, this was the proportional attack, it, and it certainly wasn't proportional. Um, and the government did come forward and say, no, that wasn't us. I suspect that that was probably something like what happened in the Tallinn case in Estonia, that this was hacktivists who basically decided that they, you know, North Korea is easy to take offline. Let's do it. They only have a few machines coming out of North Korea. Those are easy to attack. But what you're saying, actually is describing one of the elements of this, which is it's full of ambiguity. Yes. You never quite know who's done the attack. You never quite know who's responded. Well, that's the plausible deniability of a cyber attack. I mean, if, you, if you're launching a kinetic warfare, you drop bombs on something, that's easily traced, right? Yeah, it's not so easy to hide who's doing that. With a cyber attack, you can not only hide who's doing it, but you can actually plant a red flag, or sorry, a false flag to make it look like someone else has launched it. And Andrei Soldatov is striking me that this is the sort of area that the Russians absolutely love. Because, I mean, even with conventional forces, they try and introduce this element of ambiguity as to whether they're there or not in eastern Ukraine, denying they're there, and then maybe they got some volunteers and this sort of thing. This is much easier to do in this cybersphere. Absolutely. Uh, especially when uh, we got this new stage of, um, of this so-called information war, when we got trolls, and you can mm-hmm. use the same type of hacktivists. Actually, the same people were used from uh, from pro-government youth organizations to launch these trolls attacks. And it's, become, it's getting even more difficult to actually to understand whether we are talking about trolls, we are talking about people who are paid to, to make comments, or we are talking about people who are really outraged by, say, U.S. policy in some region. So these troll attacks, tell us about those. Is as a way to contaminate and to attack mostly media by aggressive comments. Uh, and trying to change uh, the direction of debate or completely destroy the debate. Thousands and thousands of comments which might pursue the same line. Go back to you, Lise. We, we had the Estonia attack sort of overwhelming your websites with stuff. And I think the technology behind that is now considered quite old-fashioned. And then you had this Stuxnet thing, which is much more sophisticated, and managed to yeah, do an amazing thing, destroy a, some nuclear centrifuges. Where has it got to now? What is the current level of technology or don't we know does anybody know i think that she's passing it to me <laughs> okay. um, the this current for, level of technology so so stuxnet was discovered in 2010 and uh, that's probably old technology at this point the state of the art obviously has advanced and when you say old technology does that mean that anyone who's worth their salt could defeat it i mean they could defend themselves against it no i i mean think I, so defending yourself against a cyber attack uh, this was a covert operation and iran didn't even know it was happening uh, it started in two, around 2007 so if you look at that from 2007 to 2010 they didn't uh, they didn't understand what was going on. And even after uh, Stuxnet was discovered, 
the Iranians still didn't know what was going on until some security researchers in the U.S. took it apart. Um, it was really kind of like it was discovered in June 2010. It wasn't until around November 2010 that the world really understood what Stuxnet was doing and therefore Iran knew. And Iranians only knew because people outside of Iran told them. So a covert operation that's done really well is not going to get discovered. I mean, you may see the physical uh, effects of it, um, but you may not know uh, exactly what caused it. Just hold on on the technology. Let's just ask Jason Healy, since he was in the White House. I mean, you don't have to tell us the details of any particular operation, but could you say that there have been cyber operations which have been successful, which no one is aware of? Oh, I'm certain. And we've been seeing, you know, my book, Start Cyber Conflict, back in 1986, where you had these these cases. When I was in the United States Air Force, we had, um, in 1998, we, we first announced. We could at least announce that we had such programs, but we, but we wouldn't talk about them. So we we're well into this phase of, of the cyber conflict and the, and the cyber attacks. And, but one thing I do want to point out, one of the myths of this field, uh, when we talk about cyber, is, is sometimes we maybe give states, non-states too much importance. There's a myth that, you know, boy, two kids in their basement constitute a strategic capability, can do big attacks. And it's true, they can take down sites. They can, for example, affect Estonia for a couple of days. But it's really the big nation states that cannot just take down a target, but keep it down over time. Big, big capability difference between uh, what the real powers can do. Okay, so this is partly scale, but let's just go back to Kim on the technology. So you said that Stuxnet is probably outdated now. What, what sort of things are, are, are happening now that, that states can use? Well, we can see sort of some of the capabilities in the uh, Edward Snowden leaks. Uh, we see the capabilities that the NSA has, not only in terms of possibly, you know, getting into every system that's out there, but extracting information from these systems. Uh, Stuxnet was using not only the sabotage, but it was also there was an espionage part of it. And these were systems that weren't connected to the Internet. There are multiple ways now of getting information out of systems that aren't connected to the Internet and getting malware into systems like that. We don't have any Chinese representative here. I mean, the big players in this seem to be the United States, Russia and China. And, Andre, it does seem that the Russians are more interested in these political acts and political actions and political opinion and this sort of thing, whereas the Chinese, as I've read it anyway and the stuff I've read about this, it's much more espionage, getting information, trying to get information from the American government, from American companies. Or maybe just because uh, that's the way it, it was reported. Uh, we just don't know enough of the cyber espionage operations conducted by, by the Russian authorities and by the Russian security services. But in a way, you, you might be correct. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's, it might be explained by, by the traditional mentality. For many years, actually, for 25 years, uh, Russian generals in charge of cyber, they actually they insisted that we need to talk not about cyber security, not about cyber warfare, but about information warfare. So they tried to include all kinds of information operations in this field. And the Americans always resisted that. They always uh, wanted to talk about cyber in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, computers, not about, say, propaganda. For the Russians, it was always the same thing. And uh, it seems that now in Ukraine we just see this kind of thing, the combination of these two things, uh, of information operations and of uh, cyber operations. Very interesting, isn't it? It does seem to reflect national priorities. So the Chinese with their commercial priorities are doing their thing. The Russians with their big power politics priorities are doing their thing. And Jason, I should ask you then, what are the Americans doing? I mean, how, you know, if, if, you, if you look at the American priorities, how would you think they're governing and aiming their cyber programs? In several different directions. I still, I still think mostly aiming towards short-term goals. I don't, I'm not sure they've really thought out the long-term goals yet. And so the short-term goals on extensive espionage, 
against traditional adversaries like China and Russia, as well as new adversaries uh, like the Islamic State. One of the biggest changes that we've seen in the United States that we've never done before, no nation has really done this, was this year uh, we had the Secretary of Defense coming out and saying, cyber attacks on Islamic State, that's us, we're doing it right now, we're going to continue doing it. And he even came to one of the big cyber conferences um, in San Francisco and said, who's got good ideas on how we can do it better? Did he use the phrase cyber bombs? Yeah, I think that was the deputy secretary, but yeah, and that made, a, that made a lot of us cringe because the United States has been telling the Russians since the 90s to not talk about information weapons. They're not information weapons or cyber weapons. It's best not to think of them as that way. It's a tough field to get your head around the right analogies to use to try and get across the right ideas, to think it through better. We have to take a short break now. Just to remind you, uh, if you want to let us know what you think of the programme, if you want to make any comments on what we're saying, uh, we do like to hear from you and we do respond to the messages you send us. So that's newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet at bbcnhextra. And there's always the podcast, BBC Newshour Extra, into your podcast app or into your search engine and it will take you there and you can download it to your device. BBC World Service. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour Extra, and we're in Estonia today to understand the nature of cyber conflict, cyber warfare, if that's the right term, and the difficult dilemmas it throws up. And we've got a very uh, excellent panel. We've got Jason Healy, who was Director of Cyber Infrastructure Protection at the White House from 2003 to 2005. We've got Kim Zetter of Wired magazine, Andrei Soldatov, a Russian investigative journalist who's studied these matters in Moscow, and Lise Verhul, from the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defence Centre of Excellence, which is here in Tallinn, because as we heard, they were attacked in a cyber way in 2007, and this has been their response. Now, we heard just briefly from the former Defence Minister, Jak Arvikso, and we're going to hear from him again. He spoke about uh, cyber attack, when it is an act of war or when it isn't, and how states respond according to those definitions. I asked him, when can a state respond to a cyber attack in kind, with a cyber attack of its own, or with force? The understanding after lengthy discussions after those effects uh, brought to a conclusion, which I think is generally shared by at least EU and NATO countries, is that what is important is the impact of the event. If there are extensive material damage and human casualties, then it's not important whether it was a kinetic attack a cyber attack, a psychological attack. That is means what is important is what is the end result. If the end result is extensive material damage and loss of lives, it is an act of war. Some people say this whole issue is exaggerated, that journalists love to talk about cyber war and they, they hype it up and that it's not really such a big problem and that it will never bring a country to a permanent halt. There is enough resilience there. What do you think? Clearly there is a lot of hype, and there are very many people are talking about things they know very little about. But on the other hand, we've seen several very serious cases. During exercises, uh, there's been clear demonstrations that you can bring down a, an electric power plant. If you are smart enough, you can cause, I mean irreparable harm to nuclear power stations, so there is a real threat. 
how big it is, very, very hard to estimate. Uh, the exercises that countries, uh, countries carry out, they don't usually publish those results, they, but they are serious threats. They are serious threats. And on the private level, I mean, I, I've been a victim of pickpocketing, but throughout my life I've lost more of my interests and had more problems in the virtual space than in physical space. I had to solve a problem with my bank three times already. So it is a real threat on a personal level. I think very many people have experienced that. And it is equally real also on a national level. The former defence minister trying to work out his online security at home. And, <laughs> That's and, what you get for having everything online. So. And have, yeah, for Estonia as a whole. Can we just try and understand, maybe we could start with you, Lise Verhul, on this, on what is different about cyber compared to the weapons systems or elements of force or elements of state power that have existed before. So, you know, we all knew about mutually assured destruction with nuclear weapons, there's all the conventional forces, but this is different. I mean, it is different in its nature. Can you talk us through the differences? Difference is the fact that uh, cyber can cause very large-scale damage that is not kinetic in nature, that's, uh, let's say, functional damage, uh, very important information systems stop operating, the traditional example that is usually brought is uh, the takedown of the New York Stock Exchange that would have dramatic financial consequences. And so this is the question that comes up. Is this an armed attack against the state just like uh, bombing would be? And what would be the responses that are available to a state that suffers that kind of harm? So that's really good. That's one difference. It's very clear. The type of damage. Also, the cost. It's very cheap. Yes, that's what they say. Does everyone agree it is cheap to do this? Well, so it depends on the level of sophistication. If you want to cause uh, just sort of taking down a computer, it's not. But if you want to cause sort of physical destruction um, and you need sophisticated knowledge of the systems, then obviously it's going to be more expensive. Like like with Stuxnet, they actually had to build their own a centrifuge plant in order to test um, how it would operate. Oh, really? Yes. They, they had a... They sort of mocked it up. They mocked it up. They, they got real centrifuges from Libya that had been sold to Libya, and they shipped them off to wow. the U.S. to a national lab there and tested. So, so that's... Cheap. That's expensive. It's cheap compared to F-16s or cruisers or destroyers. It's absolutely cheap to that. But it's not, you know, save... Not free. (laughs) Right. It's not trivial, yes. Okay, but it is a leveller because it means that smaller countries could become a big player in this. We haven't seen it work out that way. It's tended to to aid to the stronger countries um, because they're the ones that can put in the real capability. Unfortunately, it's a lot of those strong countries that, for example, like the United States, are starting to do what we call the Internet of Things, right? For the period up till about now, cyber attacks never mattered so much because they only took down things made of ones and zeros, things made of silicon, right? You know, if you're ever a student and you're working on a paper and the computer, the computer eats it, it's tough. You have to rewrite the paper. But it's not the end of the world. Now we're connecting dams, power grids, medical devices, cars, things made of concrete and steel, are not connecting to the internet. So now, because of our vulnerability, we're lowering that threshold of who can do us serious harm. So it really strikes me that a lot of the American military leaders are saying, it's awful, it's terrible, it can't get any worse. I think we're going to look back at these days as the glory days when no one had actually died, that the worst might really be to come. I see, yeah. So, so, so you're, you're, but that's actually emphasizing the first. It's the type of damage, again, that, that exactly, point. Exactly, right. But there's another element. You're, you're not very impressed with costs, so we'll leave that out of it. But there's another <laughs> element, which is, the, I mean, it seems to me it makes a huge difference in this, is the deniability. Because if 
nation states are launching these attacks and then confusing everyone by saying, I honestly didn't launch that attack. That is going to slow down the response, isn't it? Absolutely. Not too many responses are available under international law if one state can't point to another state uh, who authored the particular cyber attack in question. And uh, therefore, it, uh, it does put states in a difficult position. And, and can you ever prove it? Well, the U.S. did, uh, or at least they think they did. They attributed the Sony attacks to North Korea. Yeah, but actually, I, I read articles, I mean, of course, only the media you'll say, but I, mean, I was reading articles saying maybe it wasn't North Korea. I mean, I think there was a lot of skepticism in the U.S. about that. The, you know, when, when you're talking about an intelligence agency, though, getting the data, that's a little different than criminal prosecutors uh, getting forensic evidence. Because if you're talking about an intelligence agency, they are going to have capabilities that go much further uh, if they actually are sort of in the systems of North Korea. Um, and then they can see the chatter, uh, the planning and things like that. That's what we're assuming, the kind of thing that they had here. But we don't know. We're, we have to take the word for it of the government. Can you help us understand another important aspect of this, which is when there's all this confusion about where attacks came from, then it's quite difficult to respond. So there's there's a distinction between developing an offensive capability to get back at your enemy and just developing resilience. Because I have read some comments saying the most important thing to do here is just make yourself resilient so that if you're attacked, it's going to be okay. The best offense is a good defense. Right. What do you think, Andre? I've been reporting these things for 20, for 20 years, uh, starting in 1996. And I remember Russian generals were actually obsessed with this idea, mostly mm. not because they actually they, they wanted to protect critical infrastructure, but because it was about the market. It was about the market for information security equipment and software and hardware. And it cost a lot. And uh, when you have a federal agency in charge of cybersecurity and you're talking about defense, it means that you can introduce a special legislation forcing companies, banks, uh, government institutions to buy special kind of equipment, special kind of software and hardware, and it's actually it's a huge market. Hang on, are you trying to say that the Russian military made money by saying to the Russian banks, you have to buy our not, not the Russian military, but the Russian security services. Okay. We, have, we had a, a sort of analog of, the, of NSA, called it FAPSI, Federal Agency of uh, Government Communications, and they forced the market to buy their equipment, their software, to secure the, the communications. I see. So and it was bank. absolutely impossible to say um, to um, have um, any kind of transactions without this kind of encryption provided uh-huh. by these, uh, these enterprises. Okay, it may have been motivated by a fairly base motive to make money for the security services, but it may have been quite sensible. But it may also have been backdoored. So there may have been another agenda Right, there. backdoored. OK, we're going to have to now understand backdoored. So I went to one of these uh, sessions at the conference here, and it was very interesting because they said basically all the hardware, the chips and stuff, is made everywhere. Sometimes one little thing will be made in several countries, each country doing a little bit of it, and it could all be compromised. So however secure you think your system is, at the very hardware behind it all could be a backdoor, as you say, letting in security agencies. Right. I mean, that's the thing is we, we focus a lot on software security, like is the Microsoft operating system secure? Does it have holes in it? Things like that. But really, uh, the more sort of integral uh, vulnerabilities you can get is if someone's put a backdoor in the chip, let's say if they're, they're fabricated in China, many of them. And that's getting at the heart of the computer. You know, you're not going to be able to detect that with antivirus and other, and other methods that you have. So that's really what we're looking at in terms of the supply chain being subverted. Jason Healy, when you were in the White House, was someone reading all your communications because there was a backdoor? 
Um, probably not that. Probably not that early. Uh, cer- certainly more days now. And but I think Kim's comment gets to your earlier question about what what are the nation states doing now? It's really getting in towards deeper levels, harder to hide, and that's why I think it ties to your your more recent question about should we just go all offense? Should we not think about defense? And and I'm and I'm worried about that. I hear that a lot in Washington D.C. I'm worried about it for for. Two reasons. Hold on, just to slow you down. In Washington, you're hearing politicians saying, let's go on offense. Uh, Certainly. It's it's come up quite a bit. Or at least let's seem to be more fearful. Um, If we're being attacked, then obviously deterrence has failed because we don't look fearsome enough. And so if only people would know our capabilities, they would back away. Unfortunately, when we've looked at the history, we don't see any pattern of deterrence. When one side does something, they build a cyber command. When, when one side is on the losing end of a cyber capability, you know, the other side doesn't get fearful. They say, oh, that's the way the game is played, and they build up their own capabilities in response. So you see a dynamic of escalation. After Iran was hit with Stuxnet, they didn't say, woe is us, we better watch out the United States on cyber. They said, that's the way the game is played. And then they built up their own capability in counterattack. Yes, I just got the quote here from the Ayatollah Khomeini. He said, Iran will develop new ways of infiltrating or attacking the computer networks of its enemies. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. And, and the second main reason to not rest on the offense is it's not like this is a closed system like nuclear warfare or, or submarine warfare or naval warfare, right? We're talking about this warfare on the most transformative technology since Gutenberg. You know, the internet that we're using for society, for culture, for everything else. So if we, if we emphasize offense, we're likely to be trampling on the thing that's making such a difference in, such a, in our lives. Yeah, so, Lisa, there's a very interesting example here in Estonia of how to maybe cope with this situation, which is they've got, you know, like everyone has a National Guard where, you know, people are volunteer to defend in the event of invasion or something like that, their country. And there's a cyber National Guard here trying to work out that if there was another attack like 2007, could you mobilise people? But it's very interesting. I was hearing about this. And there's a reluctance in the system in Estonia to train up young people to be able to work in this National Guard defending the country because they're not sure if they'll use it for positive reasons. (laughs) So they're afraid of what the young people will do with their knowledge that they're given. What do you make of that? Well, I think they're going to have to mitigate this risk somehow. But the reason for having a a so-called Cyber National Guard or Cyber Defense League, as it's called here, is because much of the expertise, uh, cyber expertise, uh, is in the private sector. And clearly in the private sector, they get paid a lot of money, which the state uh, can't afford to pay them. And so the innovative solution in Estonia is to have them volunteer in uh, national defense so that should a cyber attack be targeted against Estonia, those people can come to the defense of the country and leave their day jobs for that period. It is interesting. Is there anything like that in Russia, Andre? Uh, the Minister of Defense, we announced that we actually we formed the cyber troops. Partly propaganda, we immediately said that we would have a special team stationed in Crimea to respond to any kind of enemy intrusion, uh, this kind of thing. And so it's, it's a very fashionable thing now in Moscow to talk cyber about troops. cyber troops. Cyber yes. troops mm. deployed to Crimea. Right. Mm. And were these long-haired, geeky cyber troops, or were they in uniform or what? As far as I understand, they are all uniformed. It's, it's a very strange, but uh, yeah, it's, it's about military. And Jason, is there, is there an equivalent in the States? I mean, it does seem an obvious way to cope with this, if, if you can rely on the patriotism of your youth, to get 
people who have these capabilities to see off attacks. We, we kick around the idea, but I'm actually not as uh, – I'm not a biggest fa- a fan, at least for the United States. Because when we look at the history of cyber conflict, almost none of them have been decisively resolved by governments. Almost every single one has been – it's been the private sector that's been there – to figure out who's doing it, to drill up their sleeves, to make it better, to fix whatever is happening, to bring the system back. This is on the defense side. Absolutely, in Uh almost all of the cases. And if we're bringing people, at least in the U.S., out of the private sector and government, they lose the agility, the private sector loses that subject matter expertise. They're the ones that can bend cyberspace to fix the problem. Now we're bringing them into the bureaucracy where they don't have those strengths anymore. There's another topic I'd like to move on to, which is that there is very little international law. I mean, we've been sort of grasping for moral distinctions in this conversation, trying to work out when it's war and when it isn't and what sort of responses are appropriate. But you might think these questions might be codified in international law by some international treaty, but it's not so. Uh, The governments are all reluctant to uh, commit themselves to any sort of treaty. And, Lise, you've been involved in an alternative process called the Tallinn Manual. So what is the Tallinn Manual? The Tallinn Manual is a multi-year research project that takes the pre-cyber international law because, as you mentioned, there is very little cyber-specific international law. So what states have to do is take the pre-cyber international law, like the UN Charter, for example, or the Geneva Conventions or the Hague Regulations, and apply those treaties that uh, don't have the word cyber in them to this new security context. Okay, so an example would be there's international law on freedom of speech. And you say, okay, Tallinn Manual would say there's freedom of speech online. Absolutely. So the Tallinn Manual takes that law and interprets it in the cyber context. And what, what, give us examples then of the difficult, I mean, that's quite an easy one, I presume, the freedom of speech one. So what, where do you get into trouble doing this? Well, we started with the same questions that we asked earlier in this program. What is a cyber-armed attack? We, uh, we today agree and states agree that if a cyber attack causes uh, large-scale physical damage, it's a cyber-armed attack that permits uh, self-defense with the use of force. But then it got hard when we started talking about non-kinetic damages. Are those cyber attacks armed attacks? We, for example, in the project have looked at the law of the sea and how the law of the sea applies to cyber operations when you've got vessels from which cyber operations are mounted. How does the law of the sea then regulate those cyber operations? Yes, I read a very interesting example of the, the suggestion was made, maybe we should prohibit in some way attacks on power grids, for example, by cyber attack. But then someone was saying, well, no, because I mean, we bombed them. <laughs> so, so why wouldn't you use a cyber attack? It's been an amazing 12 or 13 months in the world because prior to last May, May 2015, there really weren't any – no nations had really come out too strongly on the norms that they, that, that they believed in. Russia and China had, had come out with a code of conduct, but it was relatively general. And, and certainly there was nothing that had been agreed to. Then in May, uh, Secretary Kerry from the United States came out with five or six norms that he said the U.S. would espouse. A U.N. group within a month picked up three or four of those, not to attack critical infrastructure in times of peace, for example, which you shouldn't do anyhow. The one that the U.N. didn't talk about was no commercial espionage. 
no cyber spying for commercial purposes. And President Xi agreed that with President Obama, uh, the Chinese president and the U.S. president. And, and now that's been picked up by the G20. So in the last 12 months, we went from having none of these norms to now having them agreed to by almost all the major leaders of the world. Uh-huh. And Andre, where are the Russians on this? Are they engaging? Well, it's, it's a very interesting question because actually for many years, maybe for 15 years, the Russian officials from the foreign ministry have been desperate to get the United States to sign a sort of bilateral treaty to ban uh, cyber weapons completely. And they completely failed. Uh, so when we got this uh, U.S.-China agreement, people in Moscow felt offended. The China and the United <laughs> States. Yeah, had... because it seems that they, they, they were completely excluded from this agreement and from uh, these talks. A, a slightly irrational response, given that they presumably were doing the spying and quite happy to do so. Well, and we should point out also, you know, you mentioned, I think, briefly the power grid in Ukraine, which was taken down in December last year. Fingers are pointing to Russia, although there's no uh, solid attribution on there. If Russia can, on one hand, sort of push these treaties forward and saying we need these treaties, but then on the other hand, if they were in fact responsible for the Ukrainian power outage, we're talking about opportunism there. (laughs) Anyway, what do you think, Andre? That's part of the problem. Another part of the problem is uh, that when we do not have this kind of agreement with the United States, the response we got from Moscow is that, okay, if we cannot get this agreement, we can try to improve our defense by actually by domesticating, by localizing American services. All of us use American technologies, American services, American equipment. So we need just to force these companies to move their uh, service to Russia, and also we need to force them to open their courts for the Russian authorities. And uh, actually, we have this policy for, for two years, and it's a very aggressive policy. Let's look ahead to the implications of what you've been discussing for the future of conflict, because we've heard that it can be used alongside traditional methods, you know, alongside bombing raids and this sort of thing. But it's also, it is something new, and it can change the nature of conflict in some ways to destroying stock exchanges. So you've all thought about this. As you look ahead, how is this going to change human conflict, international conflict in the future. Why don't we start with you? You've been in the White House. You must, uh, I think you can lead on this one. What do you think? <laughs> Great, thank you. It's interesting. I find a lot of the military cyber people I talk to strangely incurious about how the future of cyber conflict might be different than what they've been facing up to this point. They imagine it's going to be largely covert, difficult to attribute. They imagine that it's going to still be largely espionage that large attacks will largely only happen when, when you have nations fight, you know, that actually choose to fight one another. We know that the gloves would only be off when Russia or U.S. or U.S.-China really go at each other. So it's been interesting to try and pull that out and say, okay, do you, what do you think is going to be predominant? Do you think it's going to be predominant that it's going to be on a battlefield fight like the U.S. is with ISIS? What everyone does agree with is there's going to be cyber in the next conflict, but that could mean anything. The one that worries me the most is one of the things about Stuxnet that Kim talked about it was largely autonomous. It was sent off for months at a time, as far as we can tell. Just go up. You don't have to check back with the human as soon as you see the, the centrifuges start breaking stuff. And so, I see. So you couldn't switch it off? No. There was no – it would – Or recall it. No. Um, so that it had, does make a difference. It had it? a sell-by date, right? It right. had a date by which it would shut itself off. So we can imagine, like, what if in 10 years from now – you know, you've now got all of this autonomous attacks and now we need autonomous defenses. It's like the high-frequency trading of the, of the bankers. And they don't understand how all that interacts. So just to explain that, this is a very important point, that. So you could launch an attack with a Stuxnet and it starts doing its work. OK, it has a sell-by date, but it may be years ahead. 
and then let's say the Iranians came to the table and said, OK, we'll abandon everything if you switch this thing off. <laughs> can you, can you, you can't. Put, can you put the slim drive in your computer, please? <laughs> right. No, you'd have to come clean about it and basically say, if you can change your, the configuration of your systems, then Stuxnet won't work anymore. But yes. you'd have to sort of work with the Iranians in order to. It, it's how one of they the things that I think is most incredible about Stuxnet. Like not just that it was the first to do damage, but for the first time since humans first picked up sticks and stones against one another, this was really a weapon that was just set out on on its own. Mm-hmm. And just to understand your point about the generals not sort of taking, not being curious enough about the nature of cyber conflict in the future, is that's probably because they don't understand it. Is it? Um, well, I think they're caught up in the tactical fight, right? I mean, if you talk, if you talk to people in the in the Royal Air Force or the U.S. Air Force, right, they would be thinking, you know, if they flew fighters, they would think that fighter aircraft is the future of air warfare. If they flew bombers, no, it's about the heavies and it's about nukes. So in some sense, they're just caught up in – and especially they're so busy defending themselves against Chinese and Russia and the rest um, – that they're not say sitting back and say, all right, where do these trends go 10, 20, 20 years from right, now? Partly defending their turf. Okay, uh, Andre, how do you see this developing? Well, I think uh, what what's what's worried me a, a lot is that, say, well, 20 years ago, uh, it was about the Russian position, about the Russian generals to talk about information, about propaganda, that we need to, to find a way to deal with foreign media, etc., etc. Now it seems to be everybody talk about that mostly because of Ukraine, mostly because of trolls. So people started talking about cyber, but ended up talking about information warfare and talking about, look, we need to do something with social media. And when you start talking about doing something with social media, inevitably uh, you are getting to the point of talking about, well, maybe in the time of conflict you need to do something with the media. And I think it's a, it's an extremely worrying thing. We already uh, heard a lot of this stuff uh, coming from of course, Russia, but also from Ukraine. We need to control our media space. We are under attack. And we need to think about this kind of threat. You're worried that it will exaggerate the role of propaganda and it will lead to all these problems, censorship and control of information yeah, and all that. Exactly. And, it will, and it will make that easier to do on a bigger scale, really. Yeah. Precisely. Lise. Listening to Jason and Andre, it got me thinking that whereas today I think of cyber warfare as cyber operations alongside kinetic operations. Mm -hmm. And today I don't think that we can say that cyber warfare exists uh, as a standalone conflict, uh, that we have cyber versus cyber and that amounts to warfare. However, if uh, Jason foresees in the future autonomous cyber weapons are one state and the autonomous defenses uh, of another state – then we might be coming close to cyber warfare per se, that it's not no longer kinetic plus cyber, but it's just cyber alone that amounts to warfare. Cyber versus cyber. And finally, Kim Zetter. My biggest concern is that, you know, this lowers the bar of for warfare. And a lot of countries that traditionally wouldn't have the capabilities to launch an attack uh, against an adversary now have this as an option. It, it is a viable option, and Stuxnet showed that. If you have some kind of political dispute with an adversary, instead of going to diplomacy or trying to find uh, some kind of resolution in another way, if you don't have the capabilities for kinetic action, cyber now opens that door. And so I'm, I'm, I, my concern is that, you know, we talk about cyber Armageddon's and Pearl Harbors, mm-hmm. in, meaning like the big players, but I think that what we'll probably see is a lot of cyber skirmishes among the smaller players. You're all raising a lot of difficulties. I mean, there is, there is an argument that cyber warfare could have one benefit, which is that fewer people die. 
it's been a benefit up to this, this point that it's been very precise. It's been very targeted, especially done by the, the U.S. British style. And that's one reason why the U.S. hasn't followed up on the proposals that Andre had mentioned from Russia to ban these. The U.S. is saying, look, these are way more humane. If you can shut down a country's air defenses without having to kill anyone, shouldn't we be encouraging that? Very fascinating discussion. We've run out of time on it. Thank you very much for helping us understand it. Jason Healy, Kim Zetter, Andre Soldatov and Lise Vihull. Uh, if you like the programme, then please do get the podcast. That's the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast once a week. There's a good back catalogue now, about a year's worth of programmes. You can email us on newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. Tweet at Extra. But for this week, from uh, Tallinn. In Estonia, that's it. Thanks for listening. From Owen Bennett-Jones, goodbye.